Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. Today, how Kiwis fought back against the private bank cartel and won. The story of New Zealand's post office Kiwi Bank. And for this discussion, I'm joined by a very special guest, Matt Robson, a former government minister of New Zealand um, who was there, whose party was instrumental uh, in setting up New Zealand's Kiwi Bank. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. It's a very pleasure to be on your program. Well, Matt, um, regular viewers of the Citizens Party's shows, like like the Citizens Report and Citizens Insight, will know that we are um, in a big campaign to get a postal bank in Australia, which is why um, once I got to know you, I was very excited to have this discussion because... Um, you did it. Your country has a postal bank and it came about because of some, um, you know, intense political efforts to get a postal bank up. Um, and I think this is something that the Australian public will benefit from um, your experience in learning about. But there's a whole history to this, though, which I think is important to provide the context that we should um, go through. Um, so before we do, though, let's just tell us a little bit about yourself including the fact that although you were a uh, New Zealand government minister, you're actually an Aussie. Well, that's one of my um, admissions that I have to give to New Zealand audiences, that uh, not only was I a lawyer, not only did I come from the largest city, Auckland, which is universally despised by the rest of New Zealand, probably the same way that Sydney and Mel Melbourne are, but that I was also an Australian. That would often get the loudest, I must say, good-natured boo. Right. <laughs> But uh, yes, uh, my Australian heritage is important to me. I came here as a teenager with my parents. They went back to Queensland, where I come from, where I was born. But uh, I married and stayed here. and It's been my life uh, since then. And my, I guess I'll be carried out of here feet first at some stage. So, yeah. Um, and you were a Labour Party uh activists what from a from a fairly young age i think you got involved yes, in politics uh, around the world after coming from australia i went at the age of 17 to uh, university um and uh, my the background of that my father had been a uh, aif veteran in the middle east on the kokoda trail and he was absolutely terrified i was his only son he did love his daughters but i was the one at a time when there was conscription for Vietnam and he was totally against the war in Vietnam. He wanted me to stay here. So off I went to the University of Auckland and I joined the uh, Labour Party uh, as probably the, the most left-wing party at that stage on the campus and uh, was a member, have been on and off, including some periods of uh, where we've parted ways, which we'll come to when we discuss the, the bank. Uh, but yes, many, many years now I was in the Labour Party. All right, well, let's get into the, the economic issues then that lead to um, the bank policy. Um, this, is a, this is a theme that our party has worked very hard to educate Australians on and, and essentially remind Australians of a certain generation of, um, about. But we had a public bank in Australia. You had a public bank in New Zealand. These public banks were um, uh, operating for decades and decades and decades. But then in the late 1970s and 1980s, 
a neoliberal economic wave swept the world, right? The Western world especially, Margaret Thatcher was at the vanguard um, of it. You, as a person who was very much involved in politics at the time, a leading activist in the party, I think you were even um, working towards being a candidate for office, what can you say, what are your observations about how this wave of neoliberalism affected your country and your party? It affected it uh, dramatically. Um, and Australia and New Zealand have common histories, both uh, colonies of Great Britain, both settler colonies, both have a tragic history in terms of the indigenous people. But our labor movements are, are very similar and there's been a cross fertilization, I guess, between the two countries. The first uh, leader of the New Zealand Labor Party was Harry Holland, who was Australian, uh, Australian militant, a very fine man. And uh, later on, the first prime minister of 1935, Joseph Savage from Victoria. Um, so there's been a cross fertilization and a, and a sharing of the history. And the setting up after the Second World War, after, particularly after the experience of the Great Economic Depression of the 30s, uh, gave the impetus in both countries to deepen and establish a, a welfare state and a greater sharing of wealth. Uh, I won't go into that, but laying that basis uh, for a progressive taxation system, being able to have free education, uh, health, uh, better employment laws, and so forth. Um, steps forward for humanity, in my opinion, and opinion, of course, of many of our, of our party members. And then in the 80s, an enormous setback. New Zealand often credits itself for being ahead of the world in good things, like 35 was when we first started the first Labour government put in the steps, very progressive steps for a welfare state. So got in there before Australia. Um, but uh, then in uh, 1987, we passed the legislation that says no nuclear weapons in New Zealand. And it pulled us out of well, we were sacked by the United States from ANZUS. So New Zealanders have often talked about being in the advance of the world and progressive steps. And that's true. But the one thing we weren't, we were advancing, but it wasn't progressive was the acceptance of Thatcherism, uh, uh, Friedman, the, the, the right-wing ideas. It's, it's just basically to smash the welfare state, smash the question of um, making societies more equal so that all of our citizens had a, a better grounding in the life experiences to come. And uh, 1984 was the pivotal year because it was an election of a Labour government which uh, will come to the role of the bank, uh, the leader of my party, who had been the president of the Labour Party, Jim Anderton, he played a pivotal role in that 84 election uh, after a long period of conservative rule. Um, and I think Australia had the Labour government 83. Mm. And the um, program put out was to deepen the role of the, of the state as a enabler of its citizens in the economy, uh, in social provisions, uh, and particularly to use the state alongside private enterprise, uh, working in the regions, because the regions uh, had declined uh, for a very long time economically. There were, there were disparities between the regions, something you'd be familiar with in Australia. And you needed particularly the state uh, to play a leading role in ending that disparity or at least uh, lessening it. So 84 was a straightforward, social democratic program to deepen 
the, uh, the move towards a more equal society. But the uh, leaders of the Labour Party, Parliamentary Labour Party, had other ideas. They openly admitted it later on that they were going to just crash their way through with the right-wing program. So it was a classic right-wing program, absolutely in opposition to what they'd been elected on, a complete betrayal of the Labour Party membership and of the country. So small government, sell all the assets, drop the taxation rates on income on the highest income earners. They, they slashed them by a half, actually, um, and talked about the trickle-down effect, which yeah. uh, people have said rather crudely that it's actually urinating on the poor, trickle down. Yeah. Um, and uh, all the classic steps that you'd uh, say, you know, privatise, reduced um, uh, income tax on the, on the wealthiest people and so forth. So the complete programme was brought in uh, in a rush. And New Zealand was stunned. The Labour Party was stunned. Jim Anderton had been the president up until 84, uh, but then he went into Parliament uh, as a very well-known New Zealander. Mm. And he and a group of about 11 of a very big Labour Party uh, caucus, because they'd had a massive win in the 84 election, said, hey, this is not what we were elected on. And straight away, it, it happened straight away. So by 85, the division was there between the cabinet under a man called Roger Douglas was the economic minister for, and David Lange, he was well known for his advocacy of being nuclear free New Zealand. Although I must tell you that until he was pushed, he was, an ad, he, he was taking the same type of role that we see, unfortunately your prime minister and mine taking it in international affairs, he didn't want it. But anyway, he did later on front up on this question, but the, the, but the savage, policy already worked out to um, change New Zealand in the direction of what was called the round table who were connected to the Mont Pelerin Society yep. to all that they, they had a they had worked very hard to put this program most New Zealanders did not understand in fact I can't even say that I understood it as, at the point at that moment uh, 84 as to where it was headed but we at least had the advantage of studying these things and getting ready for a counterattack, but I'll come back to the point that uh, in the part, the key issue politically was the parliamentary Labour Party. It was there that you needed to make a stand. Yeah. Unfortunately, the four leaders of this um, charge called Tina, there is no alternative. Have to sell off all yeah. state yeah. assets. Yeah. Have to privatise and reduce government, reduce, introduce user pays everywhere. They had the power to go to the members of parliament and basically say, you want to be in the cabinet? You want a trip abroad? You want whatever they were offering them. And the majority of them collapsed. We in the party were shocked. It was the first experience that I'd had of mass betrayal. Older members of the time probably remember other periods, and particularly in Australia, you're with what happened in the Australian Labour Party in the 30s under the Scullin government and onwards, and then later on the DLP, you perhaps had more grounding in this mass type of betrayal of policies and programs than we had. But there was about 11 members of parliament with Jim Anderson. By the end of 1985, there was one, or there was actually two, there was another 
chap who was called Landslide. He, he won by one vote and won his seat. So he always had the name Landslide. <laughs> Effectively, there was only Jim Anderton left. It was such a massive political lesson for myself and my generation of uh, Labour Party activists. And as you said, I, I was, you know, I was a leading party activist. I was in a seat that was a Labour stronghold and I could have had a career what, to go into Parliament. Matt, what, what you're describing um, sounds almost like an economic coup, uh, a takeover of government, especially if, you, if your campaign was completely the opposite of that. Um, this, is, this is quite extraordinary. Now, having, I did a research project on New Zealand in the 1990s and looked into how all this came about. Um, and I really wish we had the time, we could, we could spend hours talking about this. Um, uh, this, this question of the Mont Pelerin Society, I remember, I remember what we were able to identify was the, this round table that you referred to and for the sake of the audience, the Mont Pelerin Society was a, is a think tank that was set up, actually funded by the Bank of England and um, uh, the British government in 1947 in Switzerland, a place called Mont Pelerin. And it was a, it was a think tank dedicated to right-wing economics to undermine the new consensus that had formed around Franklin Roosevelt, Ben Chifley in Australia, Clement Attlee in um, uh, the UK, New Zealand Labour, etc., that you needed to have... Um, the government need to function in such a way as to serve the the real economy, serve the the, the, the welfare of people, um, and they they set out to undermine this, and, and Thatcher became their great champion. Thirty years later, what they also did is they spread these think tanks around the world, and there was a one of the um, Sir Anthony Fisher, his name was this this uh, British leader, co-founder of the Mont Pelerin Society, took it upon himself to do this, and it's called the, 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 um, the Atlas Network of Think Tanks. And they, they were put everywhere, including in Australia and New Zealand, and the Roundtable was one of those. Um, uh, the New Zealand Treasury, Matt, was, became a stronghold of this neoliberal thinking. Um, uh, but clearly, uh, so I, just two things to, to, I want you to comment on. Um, do you have a view whether Roger Douglas uh, was just sort of taken over by the Treasury officials and told what to do, or whether there'd been a, 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 um, a program of courting him by the Business Roundtable to, to get him into this frame of mind, in which case his whole campaign would have been dishonest in 1984? So I'd like your thoughts on that. But also, if you can describe the economic impact that these policies started to have. I think that's that's really crucial. Okay. I should have said, I mean, the econ- I'll start with the economic impacts. Uh, it stunned the country. Uh, we had no unemployment in New Zealand, very, very low unemployment. And then suddenly there was this unemployment and generations had not known what it meant to lose jobs and housing. Hold that thought, Matt. In our, in our research project, we read through all the New Zealand statistical yearbooks and in this, all the way up to the 70s, New Zealand unemployment did not have a percentage rate. It was counted, I think, maximum 200 people were unemployed in the whole country. It didn't even rate as a percentage. A Conservative Prime Minister used to boast that he could ring up each of the unemployed. He knew them by name. (laughs) Um, And it's true. In fact, may I say that one of the reasons that brought my father from Australia, there was a recession. When he came, he had a job, but he thought, well, there's better prospects in New Zealand. And he was staggered when he came to New Zealand, as my mother was. Education was totally free. 
um, health was totally free, uh, prices were low, uh, rents were cheap, but full employment, you opened the paper and there were jobs. Suddenly uh, it went and people faced with unemployment. Um, whole towns closed, whole industries that were the you know, freezing works, uh, railways, uh, other others. Change, people were happy to discuss change, but there was no thought of any to transition, planning for it. If one industry was to go out, sunset industry or whatever the cause, you, a, a responsible government would plan for those workers and those communities to have alternatives. Yeah. Nothing like that, because the, uh, the right-wing policies, and I'll come to the question about Roger Douglas and people, was you have a shock. It was shock and awe. We got yeah. used to that in terms of the Iraq war and America putting that forward as shock and awe. Well, this was shock and awe. And they said, there's going to have to be pain. Of course, the pain was always on the bottom. Yeah. It wasn't on these people. They had these catchphrases. We have to have the pain. We have to sacrifice. Never was a question of them sacrificing that they benefited, particularly with the drop in um, taxation. Suddenly, you're getting two or $300. This is $84. So be a lot more now in their hands a week that the people who least, least needed it, but the people on the bottom were cut. But you'll understand that happening. So it was a tremendous shock. Farms, farms were closed. Farmers walked off their properties. Suicides rose. Youth unemployment. And of course, as in your society, the people hit the hardest were, were Maori, Pacific, uh, women, uh, European descended workers as well. But yeah. the, the usual thing. So back to Roger Douglas. Roger Douglas and uh, some of his uh, academic advisors, in fact, one of them, Professor Holt, have been a lecturer of mine. He'd been a very left-wing left lecturer. Though in the in the 80s, these people that I was used to, and the guy called Bassett was one of my university lecturers. He was a, a key member of the Douglas Cabal in the in the parliament. They went from being ostensibly uh, left-wing and socialist and and thoughtful uh, to this new position. Uh, how they came to it, I can't say. I wasn't I wasn't in their circle. But I would think they probably all influenced each other. Uh, I know that Holt studied at Chicago, and so he came back with a lot of this material and thoughts. Uh, but they were actually easy to buy. It isn't hard sometimes to... It's one thing it's taught me in life. Don't just look at what people say. Look at what they do. Have a think about where they really are situated. And so with uh, Roger Douglas, and you pointed out the Treasury, yes, the top levels of government uh, were in on this. They, the round, they, they stepped in and out. It often, when I'm often when I'm studying American politics, it's often a comment made how quickly people move from General Motors into the administration or one of the others, BlackRock or, or Halliburton, whatever, backwards and forwards from the administration. Yeah. Well, it's not quite like that in New Zealand because of the public service situation and that, but it's pretty much like that where the treasury, the round table, and the Reserve Bank and everybody appointed on the boards, they're all in each other's pocket. They're all the 1% is the word, the term perhaps it sums it up for a lot of people. And that's what happened in New Zealand. But their plan, it was a very detailed plan. It was almost like Operation Barbarossa under Hitler. I mean, they had it down to a thing. And the only thing that stood in there, because people were shocked and stunned, they were quite right. But they really also relied on Douglas's cynicism to the top people don't worry that we're the labor party because many of the people he's working with who are concerned well obviously we're conservative but you know they they're 
they're intelligent people and they knew that it was better to use the Labour Party because that was what confused people. Yeah, yeah. It's the party of the people. Party People forgot what the name Labour meant. Having formed a party to oppose the old landed parties, we called them the Liberal Party in the old days, so you've still got the name, uh, the different Conservative parties, and to form a party to represent all the producers in the country, all the people who contribute. So the cynicism was there. Use the Labour Party as the instrument and then get the members of parliament. A big, we're talking about the bank, but we're also moving on to how politics works and what we have to be aware of yeah. and what is required of the representatives of the people. But and it's a, the and biggest it's a, shock to me was how easy it was to buy off in different ways, sometimes for a very small price, a trip abroad, the promise of a promotion, all of the Labour MPs except one, Jim Anderson. Well, uh, I want to ask you about Jim now, but just let me just preface by saying this. I want viewers to be aware, because we certainly highlight this on our show. You're talking now about the the, um, the early 80s, the mid, early to mid 80s. It's now more than 40 years later, right? And Or it's 40 years later. And and 40 years later, we can, we can look back and recognise and acknowledge that what the changes that were rung in then with all the promises that we were told, haven't worked. It's been a disaster. And so it's th these observations of yours are quite instructive because, yes, this is what we're going to be up against in, in fighting back to go back to policies that actually worked, right? The, these, I argue they didn't get rid of things like public banks because they didn't work. They got rid of them because they did work. They got... They were, these were institutions that, that were in the way of this agenda to be able to concentrate, you know, create an economic system where these, these uh, elite can loot. Um, the business roundtable from our research, and I remember doing the, the, uh, the flowchart on this, the business roundtable mapped out this agenda that Roger Douglas implemented, including this mass privatisation program, which preceded Australia's, and then... 80% of the assets that were privatised were bought at fire sale prices by members of the business, of the business roundtable, right? This was a, a wealth grab um, in New Zealand, and it's a really dramatic one, but what happened in Australia, what happened in Russia, what happened in Italy, what happened in other countries where you had big privatisation programs as well was exactly the same thing, but the New Zealand one is particularly instructive. I also remember... Um, uh, we found this this uh, quote from Roger Douglas when he was involved in a think tank here, based here in Melbourne called the Tasman Institute, Matt, which was named after the fact that Australia New Zealand, of which he was on the board as well as Rupert Murdoch. And tell me in what universe a, a true a true Labor person would ever be on a board with Rupert Murdoch, right? And Tony Blair. <laughs> That's right. And Roger Douglas, though, actually made this frank admission. He said, "We, when we sold all these assets." We used the excuse of selling down, of um, paying down government debt, but that was never the reason for it, right? He actually acknowledged it was virtually a boast later on, and that brings me though to the the privatisation that um, leads to this discussion today. So you raised Jim Anderton, and I find what's fascinating about Jim Anderton is, unlike in Australia, you had someone in the New Zealand Labor Party in the Parliament who took a stand on this to the point where he eventually split from the party. There was no equivalent 
in Australia when Bob Hawke and Paul Keating started doing exactly the same things here that you described there. Nobody in the Labor Party in Australia took a stand like that. Old timers who were no longer in the party were severely critical of it, but the actual party um, didn't. But in New Zealand you did, and it was in this um, in the form of uh, the late Jim Anderson. Now, he took a stand over the privatisation of the Bank of New Zealand, New Zealand's public bank. So why, what can you tell us about why he took the position he did on that issue? Well, he, had, he understood the centrality of the bank, which was a nationalised bank. In fact, I think it was nationalised the same year that Chifley bought in the 1945 Commonwealth Bank Act in Australia. Ah. New Zealand nationalised the Bank of New Zealand. Um, and it played a significant role. At the time it was privatised, it was the bank which uh, dominated about 20% of the whole financial uh, sector and was available to assist not just in uh, the usual banking activities, which just to make profit, but in, in social and economic development throughout the country. It was a, an important part of the toolkit of any government uh, to act on behalf of its people. Um, and so it was necessary to knock it off, to steal it. You've mentioned what happened in Russia and other places with fire sales. Well, that's what happened in New Zealand. The rail service, which was built by the country, no private company could have built yeah. the rail system. One dollar it was sold to the American company, which bought it. One dollar for the tracks. They paid other for the for the. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. And yeah. the the Bank of New Zealand was valued at probably. $4 billion in 1884 New Zealand dollars, a parity of Australia, about almost the same, um, $4 billion. And no one in the private uh, marketplace could buy that. Jim Anderson said in one of his speeches, well, if someone's got $4 billion, even a left-wing person like me might think, okay, we'll take the $4 billion. <laughs> But what he was trying to point out was that the private sector wanted it for a song, and they got a key financial institution for a song, and then they hocked it off to others, so it was sold offshore anyway. Uh, so it meant not just a public bank went, which was most important, more than even the fact that it's owned by New Zealand capitalists, but it was also sold off to the international market. And this, you were talking about the international connections, Murdoch and uh, all the mm -hmm. other figures around the world involved with this. Yes, we once had a, you know, the labor movement had an internationals. Uh, around the world to work together, people in different countries don't go to war with each other, cooperate. Well, so do these people at a very high level, which you often don't know about. Yep. And they had their eyes on the assets of New Zealand too. So they were encouraging, supporting, building and using it. And with the bank uh, at the time, uh, forget exactly what it was sold with, those comments of Roger Douglas about paying down debt uh, as an excuse, when it was sold in 80, when 84, there were 80, 87, sorry, it was sold, 88 was sold. 87, we had the big stock market crash in both countries. And um, the debt that that uh, the bank had then was was no worse than it had when it was when it was sold, you know. I mean, then in fact, it was in fact there wasn't a debt. I, I got myself yeah. mixed up there. The bank, even in the worst time, was returning an enormous amount of money to the government. So what, what was done was got rid of an important economic tool, which could have worked in with other financial instruments of the government, like Development Finance Corporation, which was also sold. But uh, the bank um, 
just lost its ability to be in this economic toolkit. So you ask what Jim Anderton, well, he was a man of principle. He was a man of honor. I've known him for 40, 50 years. I was much younger than, well, I was younger than him. And uh, what I saw was the people I knew, like Helen Clark, uh, Phil Goff, my generation, went to university with them. They capitulated. I was expecting them to be in the forefront. And then I saw them when they were offered cabinet posts. I don't know what other motivated them. Uh, perhaps intellectually they convinced themselves. But Jim Anderton said, this is dishonest. This is wrong for both our party and the country. And I will not have a bar of it. You can do what you like. Because you see, he was threatened. I'll tell you what he was threatened with. If you keep this up, you will not get any overseas trips. Okay, members of parliament like overseas trips. He laughed at them. No, I want to stay in New Zealand and campaign for decent policies. So you couldn't you couldn't buy the man, you know, you couldn't buy him. But the others could be bought. I don't necessarily mean money handed over in a paper bag, but preferment. They look ahead to their future. They're willing to sell it. So Jim Anderson became a central figure for all of us. But without him and his mana in the country, he was so well known mm. and the trust in him because the population, they saw that the parties on either side, the conservatives or labor broke their promises yeah. and didn't stand by the people, but that Jim Anderson did. And there's a famous cartoon, be worth you getting, where the Labour Party caucus, because you said Jim Anderson split them. No, no, they expelled him from the caucus for voting for the policy. The policy of the party was not to sell the Bank of New Zealand. That's different from the parliamentary party, which then sold it. So he, he hang on, he voted for the party's policy in opposition to the parliamentary party. Yes, the constitution says that the party policy prevails over the parliamentary party. And they expelled so him for that. They expelled him. So this cartoon shows Jim Anderson with the, uh, I forget, uh, probably Lange is the prime minister, pointing into the wilderness with you. But out in the wilderness was the population of New Zealand. Oh, okay. And there's Jim Anderson going out in, into the population. So there, it reminds me of that, you know, Bertolt Brecht, the public, Something like the public are revolting. We have to get a new yeah. <laughs> people are revolting. We need new people. <laughs> well, if, if someone had have done the same thing here in the 90s and taken a stand and opposed the sale of the Commonwealth Bank, that person would be universally revered today because they would have, be, they would have been vindicated by that, for that opposition given subsequent events. And I suppose the same is true for New Zealand. Jim Anderton's stance was subsequently, would you say, was subsequently vindicated by the economic yeah. developments and the public? Yes, they certainly were, because when we then later on became the party called, well, New Labour Party, forming with four, three other small parties, became the alliance. Uh, many of these policies reversed, certainly the public asset sales, but much of it had gone by then, and also an unfair taxation system. I mean, our, our GST, we don't have it, uh, our tax on uh, regressive tax isn't like Australia, where, you know, when I've been there, some things are exempt. Our tax is now 15% on everything from basic staples through to education, whatever. Uh, so the poor pay that or workers pay that. Yeah. Um, but yes, there's a success story coming if we get to as part yeah. of your interview. 
Well, okay. Uh, you say that Jim Anderton was expelled, but would it be fair to say that because of his expelled, you and others like you actually split from the party to join with Jim Anderton? And then um, when did you take up the campaign for a public bank that later became Kiwi Bank? What, what made that such an important part of your policy platform in this breakaway? Well, so many things made it important. Uh, but uh, as you pointed out, we formed a new party and I gave up my hope of being on to be a Labour MP um, under Labour banner, um, which was, I mean, people said to me, oh, you're very brave, you're very courageous. I said, no, no, Jim Anderson's the courageous one. Um, he hasn't taken you know, the piece of saws that you offered him and we're following him. He, he's the person that guides us in this uh, and we stand with him. Interesting enough, and I'll come straight to your question. I don't mean to go uh, yeah, away right. from it, but many of the people who spoke up and said, we're with you, Jim, we're going with you, particularly, unfortunately, because I worked for a trade union as a young lawyer at that time. Um, many of the trade union leaders also uh, found it was more comfortable to be with the government. They were offered things and they were all ready to go and they were going to fight to the last breath, except uh, they had a few more breaths and they didn't fight and they capitulated. So Jim, when he went out, was pretty much without resources, without these blowhards who said they would stand with him. But certainly ordinary Labour Party members deserted the party or left the party and joined us uh, in droves. So it was quite a phenomenon. But the reason for the bank, well, we developed, well, we actually took a lot of the old Labour Party policy. I mean, much of the policy we had was was went forward in 84, which was portrayed in particular regional and economic development, which meant a coordinated, concerted um, use of all government agencies, powers of the state, alongside community organizations, uh, businesses in those areas to develop good planning in each of the regions to lift them up and use their advantages. And central to that, was any financial tools. And part of that key financial tool, of course, was a public bank. A public bank, which wasn't, uh, as the shareholders of all the private banks once, what is the interest of their, of their shareholders? Well, the shareholders of the publicly owned bank were the whole population, and it was their interest that would be served. And so that, you know, when, if the, and well, also, uh, we part of this, I know it's part of what you've been concentrating on, were the closure wholesale of banking branches throughout oh, yeah. the country. They were just decimated and uh, people had no services. And this is before the excuse that technologically we've moved on from having yeah, right. a place. Yep. This, was, this was when you needed a bank yep. for every, every particular uh, service for drawing money to depositing. So it was a fable then, it's a fable now. And, so we, and, we, and these... And these were by then mostly Australian-owned banks, right? Your banks, yes, or our the banks. Bank of New Zealand soon parks passed into private Australian hands, and yep. and beyond that to the rest of the world. The four and there were five banks at that time. National later, I think, joined with um, the Bank of New South Wales and whatever became the ANZ. West, Westpac. Oh, Westpac. Yeah, um, but um, they were all they were all privately owned, and they rigged comp. There was no competition. They were cartels. So yep. fees just went through the roof. 
So ordinary people paying for this, paying for that. You've had a Royal Commission, which has exposed uh, so many of these practices. Well, that was in New Zealand as well, because the same banks in Australia were doing the same yeah. things here. Yeah. And, and, and just their profits were gargantuan. Um, so you needed any government left, right or center with a, a brain would say, hey, we can't control monetarization. We can't control the economy. We can't plan for a decent society if we do not have a bank which could compete with these people. And the Bank of New Zealand had been that had been that bank. It used to return, and I get the numbers now, but an enormous amount, over $500 million in 84, 84, $86, $87. Um, and of course, the other thing about a, a bank which is publicly owned, it doesn't have an incentive to avoid tax. All yours. That's all, right. That's right. All those Australian-owned banks. I stress not just Australian, because you could have a New Zealand bank which raids into Australia. There's plenty of New Zealand companies go into Australia and strip them, assets strip them when they're allowed to, and do the same type of things. These people oh. have no conscience, no no country. It's the, a publicly owned bank, which is the important thing. It has no incentive to lower its taxation. It wants to give the government as much as it can. And it's there in perpetuity, in good times and bad. And that's what you need uh, in any sensible, rational economic policy. Do you remember why, uh, when and why you decided that the best vehicle would be the post offices? Well, um, actually, the initiative came from the post offices themselves. Um, we had been discussing abstractly, all of us, you know, yep. not a public bank. And so we should just say it. Uh, and then as you get closer and closer to government, I mean, Jim Jim was the most experienced of all of us. So he'd been thinking a long time, how do you do it? What are the nuts and the bolts? For some of the younger ones at that time, it was a little bit, uh, well, we just put the slogan up and it'll, it'll happen like Father Christmas coming. But then we started to focus once we became MPs. Uh, 93, we had Jim and another one of our leaders, uh, Sandra Lee, under the old past the post. 96 was different because... Uh, Australia, of course, with its preferential system was a little bit advanced to us at that stage in terms of being able to, but MMP, proportional representation, was a big game changer in 96. But when we had more MPs, we were focusing and the discussions came from within the post bank itself. But we, we'd we been aware, but perhaps uh, not as uh, much as later, what a network there was. And, you know, if we looked outside weren't so insular in New Zealand and looked outside to places like Germany, which have been using this system yeah. for a very long time and, and other countries, it was there to be looked at and successful and you could learn from it. So the post was faced with the problem of declining number of letters as new technology came in and a drop. So they sensibly sat down as the brains trust and said, why don't we, because there used to be a post office savings bank that was privatized as well. So the post had had experience at being yep. a bank yep. uh, when there was a split between trading and savings. They were the post office savings bank and the bank of choice of the New Zealand working class. They're in their area, in their doing, they could be trusted. They were government. Yep. Yep. Uh, they had a name. So it, there were various people um, who came in. Interesting enough, someone who was a chair of the post board, been a former um, uh, chair, president of the National Party, our Conservative Party. Yeah. But, you know, he had a brain in his head. He had a conscience. And he saw that what Labour was doing in his own party, it was previous party, 
uh, was not in the interests of the country and that the post uh, service could become a banking and that it's it sprang from there and it now seems like common sense but it wasn't at the time All right that's that's great the way that came about so in 1999 matt um your alliance entered into a coalition government with helen clark's labor party um so and that that is somewhat thanks to the proportional representation system that new yep. zealand adopted but also how much do you attribute your success to the banking policy and the and the campaign you had? Oh, enormously. It was one of the key things in both, in all of that. Earlier on, uh, we called it 93, we had a 93 election. We didn't uh, succeed in getting many members of parliament in, but we laid the basis. And we ran, oh, we ran back in 1990s, the new Labour Party. And we had, you know, abstractly. But by 1999, we could refine it. We didn't have the name at that stage, Kiwi Bank. Yeah. Uh, that, I'll explain how that came about. But Public Bank, it was actually called Jim's Bank. <laughs> Everywhere. Oh, we're voting for Jim's Bank. And, and that's all you had to say. Do you like Jim's Bank? And any meetings, we had big meetings, 300, 400, 500 people, maybe bigger in some of them, union meeting, community meetings, you know, the usual thing. Um, and it was... it. It was the, one of the most popular because it actually affected people's lives. You know, yeah. Very thought they could go down to their local bank, and also it was a little bit of chauvin. I I used to try and counter the uh, sort of that chauvinism stuff. I don't quite like it. I I like you know, I don't mind the name Kiwi Bank, but I, it needs to have Kiwi publicly owned bank because you can soon turn a Kiwi Bank into yeah. oh, oh this yeah. is owned by Mister or Mrs Moneybags, but they're Kiwis. Well, yeah. yes, but they spend their holidays in San Moritz or on the Gold Coast. Um, <laughs> there's, no, there's no loyalty amongst thieves. No. But um, it's extremely popular, but also uh, integrated. We had a very detailed, a bit like your party, which attracts me to what you do. You put out the facts. You put out research. It can be wrong, but people can argue on the facts, not ad hominem. Yeah. We had detailed uh, policies and Jim was a stickler for that. He said, "Don't tell the people lies. Stand by your policies." And in fact, it harmed us because when we said you want free education, you want free health brought back, this is what the taxation has to be. We worked out a detailed taxation policy which actually benefited the lower people, but the right wing and the conservatives and the Labour Party hammered us with that the party was going to raise taxes. They never, they always left out that it was taxes on those who'd had them drop by 30, 40%, yeah. not on the lowest people, plus the return of having free education, free health, public housing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and a growing economy. It wasn't just tax and spend, you can do that, but a detailed plan for yeah. regional development. And that comes back to the bank. We wanted the bank not just to be, uh, it wanted to be successful, but also to work uh, further in terms of social and economic development throughout the country. Well, let, let's talk about that in a minute um, when we talk about how it's actually performed. But still, there's a, there's a great story here about how you actually got it. Because once you're in government, um, you're in a coalition with the Labor Party. So how supportive was the Labor Party for the policy and what did it actually take to get it up? They were as, as supportive as, I think it was Lennon who said, the rope that supports a hanging man. <laughs> Uh, complete hostility. So we were kissing cousins once again. I mean, right. you know, 
yeah. it's a small country, five million people. Everybody knows everybody, goes to their barbecues, um, you know, went to university with them or worked with them or whatever they did. So, you know, that's, that's that. But still, the policies were very different. But one good thing, I'll just come on that for Labour, their right wing under Douglas had split off into another party called ACT, which tells, stands for Association of Consumer and Taxpayers, which tells you everything about that you want to know about them. That's their yeah. real politics. No one's a citizen anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A consumer or a taxpayer? So, and taxpayer. So Labour had backed off from its first, it had, its, its membership demanded no dropping the tax rates on the richest people, no more asset sales. But they were, as a party, saying, well, this we might have been wrong uh, to do it the way we did, but you had to change, as though there was only one way of changing, which was the crash and bang theory. Um, and so, but okay, but we had, we had an agreement with them, and including on foreign policy, which is something dear to my heart, uh, not to be involved in military alliances around the world, all the ones that we didn't want. Um, so there was, a lot of, there, was to there was a lot of agreement, and the public backed us. And in fact, it was a little bit to our detriment because a lot of people, you know, Labour Party's been around a long time and they said, oh, Labour's coming home. The Alliance has helped them. Uh, but, you know, but anyway, Jim's, Jim's attitude was always doesn't matter. The policies are matter. Whatever the vehicle, we yeah. push the policies. That's our legacy. That's our important legacy. So back to this. Well, Helen Clark and Michael Cullen were famously, even when we got the bank, to go on television and say, well, we're not joining. We're staying with like the BNZ or wherever they had. And <laughs> they were sour about it right through. Helen's had the good grace to admit she was wrong, wrong, wrong. But oh, they good. fought tooth and nail against it. And on their side was the Treasury still. I mean, we hadn't executed these people. <laughs> these villains were still there, you know. We didn't have the power to take them out, send them off to a gulag. <laughs> but... but um, they they were still there they were still fighting the battle of the 80s yeah and they were disloyal um i'll come you know they i'll tell you the dirty tricks were everywhere and what was the weapon we had the people including the labor party branches so into the labor party cabinet and mps came the recommendations and resolutions of ordinary labor party branches we want jim's bank um, now, they set their face against that because they're experienced at staring down their own members. But they, because, you know, when the, when the asset sales were on, the Post Bank, uh, Bank of New Zealand, the Railway, Air New Zealand, the whole lot, 90% of polls said don't sell. Yeah. And yeah. they sold. I thought people will get over it, particularly if we offered them shares, mum and dad shares. But so back to this time, well, even in, so I was, you know, the cabinet, we, we bought the, this was, this was a flagship policy. Yeah. They had it in front of them. We said, we want our bank. So a committee, you know, you set up a committee, which Jim was on. And there was Michael Cullen as the treasurer and the other key ministers, the finance ministers and Jim. There were four of us in cabinet, myself, Lila Hurry, uh, Sandra Lee and Jim. So Jim was our person. There were three of them. Uh, because we, we strategized, of course. And what Jim did was he always did, he put the facts on the table and said, what do you think of this fact? Cross that one off. What do you think of this fact? Cross that one off. And he was 
had the support of the New Zealand Post Board. Well, most of them. There was a whole there were a number of traitors in there, and okay. they went out and leaked stuff and went in. There was a complete campaign against the bank by the establishment, which the Labour Party bought into. And then I remember one pivotal meeting in the cabinet where we had a vote on it, and the vote went 16 against us, four for us. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and our members were getting edgy. A lot of them wanted to go and pick at the banks and do all sorts yeah. of things. And Jim cautioned, no, he said, we're in government. You don't have to do that. We'll put the pressure on them uh, by the facts. And we've got the country with us. So just, just take your time. Part of his wisdom, again, political wisdom, he knew they'd have to back down. And eventually they did. There's a famous meeting, uh, which you know about, where final, final cabinet meeting on this, where Jim went through, once again, every single argument against the bank and absolutely demolished it, uh, including both the, particularly on the financial side, which they always pulled out, it'll be a failure. The, the government will have to keep putting money into it. Oh. So he showed he showed what the fact that they had a network, as you're talking about, a post-bank network, already flying start because you don't even have to put that up. You need an investment, surely, but you're looking at a return of your investment. If you and you know, using their language, what's going to be a good return? Well, we could show a good return. So finally, after a very, very long marathon session, um, Michael Cullen still holding out as the treasurer, one of the ministers, Minister of Health, Annette King, who also had a finance portfolio, turned to Michael Cullen and famously said, For God's sake, Michael. Jim's destroyed every one of your argument. For God's sake, give him his bank. <laughs> and Michael Cullen said, oh, okay. <laughs> and we, we had our bank. Two great <laughs> jubilation and cheering throughout the country. But the troglodytes, the treasury, the round table didn't stop. They had front people. It taught me a lot about some academics. You know, one guy who's the banking public public professor at Massey University. His name, interestingly, was Professor Tripe, but we had some fun with that. <laughs> this bank will fail. It's no point. We've moved on. Banks are only for the private sector. There's no role for government, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was in the end facts and. Well, but I say that on the post office board, there were, there were leaking of their minutes by people mm. who were disloyal, which shows you the importance of who put on these boards. Yep, for sure. And one of one of the treasury, one of the gov, the, the Commonwealth is a that's not a Commonwealth, but there's a Crown monitoring organisation called CCMAU. Um, it was supposed to do the work for the government on an objective basis. One of their members was leaking the reports to the right wing parties act and others. He was found out, you know, and he was sacked or resigned or whatever he did. But that was the level they, they had an enormous campaign um, against us because those who had the right wing agenda, the, the Margaret Thatcher Friedman agenda, they knew that this was going to be a powerful factual argument dragged out of the with yeah. academics in you know, those realms because people could see and we can go on to it, but it became an enormous success. Well, that's what I was going to ask. They they wanted it to fail, but 
um, you've seen you've seen it was a success. I've I've had a discussion with a director of the ANZ Bank at at the time, who told me how flawed the board of the ANZ Bank was at how much of a success it was, um, and so do you think those have have those people who tried to predict its its um, failure. Have they, aside from Helen Clark, who's probably has a certain amount of goodwill and is well-meaning, have some of those more entrenched people admitted they um, they were wrong? No, they never do. Um, <laughs> in fact, all they all they plan now is, and then John Key is one of their who's now on former prime minister is now chair of the ANZ Bank here. Um, he planned to sell it, but he met resistance from his own party, ah. and he planned to he put up trial balloons. Let's do. Um, some partial privatization. Let mum and dad investor into the usual thing, you know, and then mum and dad and investor was followed up by ANZ and the rest of them. Um, but even his own party said, whoo, a bit like the, the nuclear policy. Hey, don't even go there. It's unpopular because it's popular with National Party voters as well. So that's that's been the sorry, uh, Matt, that's been the success story, but now it's it's a, it's roughly 20 odd years into its existence. Um, and I think this is an important part of the discussion for Australians as well, because I'd be interested in your views, given the way you don't get to manage the bank, um, you know, governments of the day who don't share your views anymore are in charge of who manages the bank. So what do you think of um, its performance? What are its strengths and weaknesses, in your opinion, the way Kiwi Bank has operated? And how could it be improved if you were in charge? Well, a little bit of background there, because the strengths, uh, it, the government put, I think, $60 million in, in New Zealand, $2,001, so it's not more now. Um, and then Cullen said, that's all you're getting. <laughs> it was paid back within a year to a year or two. Wow. The, remember, the, the We were told that only, it really shows you the elitist policies, only sort of deadbeats and beneficiaries, beneficiaries classes, deadbeats and and low income people would join this bank. So not your, not your important people. Well, 800,000 people, New Zealanders were members uh, within three years and with a population of, you know, at that time, four and a half million people. Yeah. So that's enormous. Yeah. The bank started straight away being able to compete on fees. So the other banks had to lower their fees. Mortgage rates were down, services, um, upgraded technological services, better service and so forth. And keeping branches open and opening new branches. A big winner everywhere in yeah. the national health seats as well as labor seats everywhere. It was now a bank um, of the Kiwi Bank alongside the post shop. And it kept post shops open as well. We call them post shops, not post yeah. offices. So there was that. A board was set up, but the it was a success at first because the first chair was the former National Party Prime Minister, Jim Bolger. So a very clever move because right. National Party came out guns firing when it was set up. This is a waste. This is the government. This is pandering to Jim Anderton and the, the dog, the tail wagging the dog, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because um, <laughs> counting of the population wanted it. Um, but we went to where Jim Bulger was the uh, New Zealand ambassador in Washington said, would you like to be the chair of the Kiwi Bank? Yes. And so National couldn't do anything. Because <laughs> their own member, yep. their own prime minister was the yeah. head. And a very good board was put in, uh, so putting the board. But 
and you know it went from strength to strength to strength as part of the plan of developing it um, as a tool alongside setting up a development finance corporation that was our plan but soon afterwards different story our party had an internal war and we disappeared from the scene so another lesson there there's another discussion yeah so labor labor loved it in the 2005 election they used it but once the national party came in they said about the steps it's still a public bank but no longer does it have a board that's on board with developing it in the broader sense of what this bank should do they've started joining with the other banks in closing branches etc so uh, perhaps i can come to that side the, the the bank's a great success it's a public bank still it's yeah. in public hands but there are weaknesses how much of a role did Jim Anderton and your alliance have to play in, in picking the original board? Um, a, very, a very big role, um, because the Labour Party were quite good about it. Uh, Jim decided he wouldn't push to be the minister in charge, because it would be seen um, and, and it could be attacked. Here's Jim's bank again, Jim's running it. He wanted it to be seen as this is the property of the people, uh, any minister, uh, can be put in charge, competent minister um, can be in charge of it, and it's run straight down the line. It's not personal favours. I'm not. A, he also didn't want to be seen as the person appointing people, that type of thing. But there's a process for putting people on board. On yeah. board. So the, the 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 decision to put Jim Bolger um, was both political, and Jim Bolger could do it. He had the ability to do it. Um, uh, Jim had a big role in that. And you know we all okay. said, yeah, we like that. The the other members uh, chosen for their professionalism, but also their honesty and their their agreement with what what the aim of the bank was, the wider aim. Um, so a very big a very big part. And so I say they were quite good in getting sign off on who should be appointed to the to the board. And of course, it's changed since, and the present board, I wouldn't appoint them. So let's elaborate then, um, Matt, on the on the weaknesses and how you how you would improve it if you had a chance to i think i think i think it needs a charter the bank um well two things you can't the problem is with all of these things as you can see you know what happened with the chifley reforms <laughs> 45 and with your own commonwealth bank um and then particularly if your own side weakens uh the the, the public goals and policies yep. not a lot you can do the only th there, there you come to a second part which is having a very strong political movement for the people yeah um and may i say one of the bodies that can play a big part in this are trade unions um uh, as the representatives of so many working people uh, to demand policies which are uh, and protection of a public bank or whatever public institution it is so I can only say that what, and also our party shouldn't have disappeared. We could have played a big part, but we still can. We still got a voice. We still got people and places. Um, the thing to do now, it needs a public campaign, hands off our bank. We've got the bank, um, a bit like the BNZ uh, when it was having financial difficulties uh, and had made some stupid decisions before the 87 crash, publicly owned as it was. But it also had a you know, right-wing board and they bought into the uh, right-wing agenda. Uh, Jim's argument at the time, when challenged on it, was say, well, 
you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You change the board, you change this direction, you change the policies. Um, and so with this bank, um, it needs the Labour Party at the moment having a look at the board, uh, putting people on there who are committed to its public purposes and perhaps strengthening it by the directions uh, from the government and then winning public support for those so that they're seen not just as a you know, narrow political party, but a bit like you've got legislation to say what the Reserve Bank in New Zealand can do. Um, you need, perhaps you, perhaps you need further legislation. That's all I can suggest at the moment, but it certainly needs um, the, the period afterwards to maintain the goals. And as I'm stressing, it's part of a part of the economic toolkit of any progressive type of government for their people uh, needs to have policies that protect that public institution. Yeah. So in conclusion, uh, Matt, is New Zealand better off because it has a postal bank? And would your other country, Australia, benefit from having a postal bank? On the question of New Zealand, undoubtedly so. Even with those weaknesses I've suggested, and by the way, the, the bank cut off from the post office bank. Another thing which was encouraged um, to standalone bank now, but it's best to keep it the synergy with the post bank as Germany has showed, one of the examples. Okay. Uh, it's a great synergy. But people have, despite the flaws, they have access to a bank which puts pressure on the other banks uh, in terms of fees and keeping them honest, if you like. Yeah. So it does play a role in home mortgages and other things. Uh, a need to extend it into support for small businesses, local businesses, regional initiatives, but that's in the future. Would Australia benefit? Undoubtedly, um, because uh, clearly uh, development in Australia and rational development and with all the needs of the states and within the states and a bank which, is, which opens its branches is in tune with what the local needs are in terms of That's right. possibilities. What can they develop in that regions? What are their strengths? How can the banks put in long-term development loans? How can the bank uh, work and feed back to government what's happening in their area? Uh, any government worth its salt uh, would, would liaise uh, with the financial lending institution. What's coming to you? What is needed? What sort of um, way should we cooperate? Uh, both in your lending capacity and government's wider lending capacity for initiatives. So many benefits. It's, it, it, you know, it doesn't need a, this time as a rocket scientist to work it out. Just need someone with a brain and, a, and goodwill towards uh, the needs of the country. I mean, all politicians go on about our country and et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's where the rubber meets the road. Uh, yeah. in the needs of their communities, put in a financial institution, a bank based on your post offices, which already have a network across the country uh, to help to build those communities. Well, uh, Matt Robson, thank you very, very much for your information today, your observations, your advice for Australia. Um, I'm quite excited by the potential of this discussion. I think people are going to learn a lot from it. Um, not least the fact that you can win these battles. This is, uh, you know, there's a, um, this, this, this Tina idea, there is no alternative. People got politically brainwashed in this idea that, oh, you can't change it now. It is what it is. This is the system we've got. No, it's not working. And we've got to go back to something that does work. And your story about winning that politically and then how a bank can actually function 
um, is brilliant. Australia needs to learn from its little cousin across the ditch on this one. Um, and thank you for being the person to help us do that as the, the right person because you're an Aussie too. So we'll leave it there, uh, Matt. Um, I encourage the viewer, when you watch this show, excuse me, get on the Citizens Party's website. You'll see all the material laid out there for the Australian campaign for a postal bank. Understand, get excited from what Jim said. Understand that this is an achievable policy and we will not stop until we have achieved it. So thanks, Matt. My pleasure.